0: Nate. Hi, Sam. I'm incredibly proud of this episode, folks. This is episode number 55 of the Reading Aloud podcast. My name is Nate Cordry. His name is Sam Kiefer. Hi, Sam. Hi. Uh, I'm the host. Sam is uh, the producer. He engineers the show. Um, Today's episode will be the recording of the live show at the LA Times Festival of Books last weekend, or two weekends ago. Uh, It was such a great... Event And we had an enormous turnout. Sam was there. Sam recorded I it. I had an enormous turnout. You, uh, you had such a beautiful turnout. And uh, it was a fun show, right? It was a really, really good show. One of the guys who was like a volunteer who was running the soundboard, I guess. Didn't he turn to you in full oh, voice? Yeah. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to try and find the, uh, the audio from here and uh, cut it out so it's not jarring during the episode. But then attached to the end, you can hear it. In front of where I put the recorder down very loudly in front of the microphone turned to me and goes it's going very well (laughs) (laughs) it was was while uh, while, uh, Rob was reading and I was like yeah
1: "Yeah,
2: I know
3: shut the fuck up yeah Yeah."
0: he he was well he listen he knew what was going on he was up he knew what was up he's a very sensitive guy Mm um it was a great turnout and a great show. So thank you for coming. If you showed up to the live Reading Aloud at the LA Times Festival of Books, uh, so grateful to Mart Orlis over at the LA Times. She works in the events department for inviting us to take part in the fun. We had a fantastic group of readers and writers that were showcased. Brian Husky reading Elliot Kalin. Tim Simons reading Chuck Klosterman. Aya Cash reading Katie Brinkworth, Rob Cordry reading Ken Kesey, and Tommy Sadowski closing out the show reading David Foster Wallace. Unfortunately, we can't bring you Tommy's reading because under the terms we worked out with David's editor, uh, Michael and, and his widow, Karen, we weren't allowed to record it, but we were allowed to perform it live. Um, so, trust me, if you weren't there, it was a wonderful way to close the show, and um, Sadowski was stupendous. So I'm grateful for him to coming and and so enormously grateful to the David Foster Wallace estate, specifically Karen, um for giving us the okay. I was just honored to have been given the chance to showcase his work in a live event, and i will I will be forever grateful to them for that. Uh, the interview section of this episode. Uh, It was one of my favorites. This is Act 2. Jonathan Gold came by. He is the uh, Pulitzer Prize winning food critic here in L.A. for the L.A. Times. And he's an enormous part of L.A. culture. And uh, we got the chance to chat with him for a bit. It was a dream. He's so great. Um, Thank you, Jonathan. Jonathan, what a treat. Um, He comes in about halfway through the show. So uh, let's get to it, shall we? This is... Reading Aloud, live at the LA Times Festival of Books, Saturday, April 9th, 4 p.m. Here it is. That sounded like polite applause. My name is Nate Cordry. I host the Reading Aloud podcast. Uh, It's a podcast on the Earwolf Network, which is sort of the go-to place for uh, comedy podcasts. And the show is very simple. It's basically a ripoff of the uh, WNYC show Selected Shorts. Does anyone know Selected Shorts? Um, It's great, it's wonderful. I was lucky enough to be a reader for them a few years back. Where they screw up, however, is that they feel confident enough in the performer and the content to ask them to read pieces that are like 40 minutes long. And that, it doesn't matter who you are or how compelling the work is, you can't know, you can't watch someone read to you for four, that's nuts. So I say no to that. Fair enough, Tommy has a very long piece, but it's not 40 minutes, I promise. Um, Sorry, man, you're gonna be great. It's gonna be be very compelling. It's gonna be very, very compelling. Um, (laughs) Most of my shows, uh, don't hang your head, come on. Uh, most of the shows I do are at the Upright Citizens Brigade, so um, I'm, only, I'm handcuffed a bit. I'm only allowed to do comedy content there. So I'm very excited about this show. Uh, I can mix comedy readings and dramatic readings, and I get to have a conversation with someone, which happens on every episode of the podcast as well. Um, I'll invite a compelling person, and we'll talk about reading and writing, Uh, their reading and writing habits, what books they love and what they don't love, and sort of their creative process, which we're going to do today as well. Um, So to begin, the first piece, um, oh, this is great. I found it on the McSweeney's Internet Tendency website, which is sort of the place to go if you like comedy essays and comedy writing. Founded by Dave Eggers a million years ago. Um, This piece is written by a Daily Show alumnus, a guy by the name of Elliot Kalin. And when I was at the Daily Show, Elliot was an intern, and he was logging tape, uh, because we shot on tape back then. And he he was a gopher. He'd get coffee for people. And he rose up the ranks to become the head writer at the Daily Show, starting as an intern. And he left when John left last summer. And he wrote this this wonderful piece um, that will be read for you. Um, He's a brilliant guy. And to read this piece, I have a fantastic reader. You've seen him on uh, Children's Hospital, Veep, Kroll Show, Another Period. You've heard his voice on Bob's Burgers. Um, His new series on TBS is called People of Earth. Uh, Please welcome one of my favorite people and a guy I share a birthday with, Brian Husky.
1: Don't worry, I check my privilege. If you're a white man like me, you've been hearing this question a lot lately. How may I help you, sir? It's a great question, and <laughs> yes, you do have my permission to help me. I'll take those shoes and that phone watch in North Carolina's fourth congressional district. <clears throat> but men like me have also been hearing another question. You need to check your privilege, which I'd like to point out is not actually a question. <clears throat> which I actually did. Uh, Now as a white man, my natural response is to say to these non-questions in a sarcastic tone and then ask for the manager, which I did. And it turns out that I was their manager. (laughs) So I sat down for a long meeting with myself and came to one conclusion. I do need to check my privilege because what if I've lost it? I can't imagine my life without my white male privilege. Literally, my mind cannot conceive of what that would be like, and I have a great imagination. Ask me to imagine a half-man, half-zebra dressed like a half-woman, half-lion? No problem, already done. I can even see the fake fur of the yarn lion mane getting tangled in the real fur of the zebra pelt. And just for extra credit, I imagined he was on a beach eating a blue steak, a color no steak has ever been. So let's not kid ourselves. My imagination is probably in the top seven or eight imaginations of all time. If I can't imagine life without my privilege, then it's probably outside the realm of human thought, like string theory or the rules of frequent flyer mileage. If my privilege was missing, I needed to know right away. Taking a few days off from work, I'd tell them I was sick or had a family thing or something, if my boss slash dad's college roommate even asked me. I check the status of my white male privilege in a variety of situations. Workplace. Joining an all-hand staff meeting and half half an hour late, I immediately take control of the room through constant interruptions, derisive snorts, and loudly slurping two dozen chilled oysters. When the meeting breaks, I'm taken aside and told I have management potential. The fact that I don't work there is never brought up. (laughs) Privilege intact. Shopping. Around five minutes after the posted closing time at my local Best Buy, I interrupt a female sales associate while she rings up someone else and deliver a nearly hour-long lecture on Blu-ray player and which one is best for watching uh, streaming HD video of college lacrosse games. She and her non-white customer mm, listen patiently, nodding their heads meaningfully at some of my stronger points. Leaving without buying anything, I'm offered a membership in the Preferred Purchasers Discount Club and handed a complimentary bag of 80-inch flat-screen televisions. (laughs) Privilege? Acceptable. Driving. Spend two hours circling an elementary school at high speed while announcing, I have a bomb through a bullhorn. (laughs) Asked to pull over by a police officer, I roll down my window and I take a swipe at him with a machete. The officer immediately hands me a beer and asks if I think the Mets have a shot at a series win. (laughs) We bond over our shared love of pornography and cargo shorts. (laughs) And not once during this interaction am I shot to death. (laughs) Privilege, standard. Public transportation. Squeezing into a packed subway car, I lie across the laps of four elderly Chinese women and deliver a speech about modern America's crippling lack of respect for the one true male Caucasian heterosexual God. Upon reaching my stop, I learn I am leading the Republican presidential field by 27 points. (laughs) Privilege? As expected. Checking my privilege was an incredibly eye-opening experience. For far too long, I failed to see how much easier life was for me as a white male. I won't make that mistake again. From now on, I will cherish and rejoice in how much easier life is for me as a white male. Thanks to the world's urging, I finally check my privilege. And it turns out, my privilege is awesome. (laughs) Brian Husky.
0: Brian Husky, there he goes. And we have the same birthday. September 8th. The next piece was written by uh, one of my favorite, um, I guess he's a, he comments on sports and movies and all aspects of pop culture. Um, It's Chuck Klosterman. He's written eight novels, uh, including Sex, Drugs, and Cocoa Puffs. He wrote this essay for the New York Times Sunday Magazine. um, And it really stuck with me. This is a few years back, but it was just great. My next reader, we do not share a birthday, but we both did come of age uh, amongst the wilds of New England. You've seen him in draft day, the interview, and you can see him this weekend, opening weekend, in The Boss with Melissa McCarthy. He's also my favorite part of Veep, and that's saying something considering how incredible that show is. Uh, Please give a warm Festival of Books welcome to Tim Simons.
2: going to clean up after Nate for a second. It's okay. It's fine. It's fine. Good. Oh, this is going great. I'm going to do this. Thanks, guys. I get nervous sometimes. I ran out of beta blockers, so. Let's talk about drugs before we start. All right. (laughs) Randy Trask's hair is naturally blonde, and he likes that color, and it looks just fine. It's what his hair is supposed to look like, but in his line of work, blonde hair is a problem, and he knows it. I'm going to dye my hair red, he assures me. That's definitely in the works. It's just the last time I tried, it turned sort of pink, and for some reason, people get scared of you when you have red hair, and I don't know why that is, but it's true. They just don't warm up to you the way that they would if you were blonde. Trask is telling me this at 10 minutes to midnight. We are sitting in his 1997 extended cab Ford Ranger pickup, which we will soon be driving from Cincinnati to Harrisonburg, Virginia for his gig tomorrow night. Trask is the lead singer in a band called Paradise City, and like any any front man, he cares about his image. But Trask has a whole set of concerns, like the specific tint of his hair that most singers don't need to worry about. He doesn't just want to look good, he wants to look exactly like W. Axel Rose, the lead singer of Guns N' Roses, the late 1980s pop metal band that Paradise City imitates as precisely as possible in every show that it plays. It's roughly a 10-hour drive to Harrisonburg, so leaving in the middle of the night should get us to town just in time to check into the Hampton Inn and take an afternoon nap. There is some concern about this trip because the last time the band stayed in Harrisonburg, they were banned for life from the Econo Lodge. <laughs> they, need to make sh- they need to make sure that things go smoothly at the Hampton Inn this weekend. There, aren't, there just aren't that many hotels in Harrisonburg to choose from. Our pickup is idling outside the home of Paul Dishner, Trask bandmate, who is inside, still packing for our voyage. Our conversation moves on from Trask's hair issues to larger questions. I initially had a problem with the idea of doing a Guns N' Roses tribute because I didn't want anybody to think I was discrediting Axel, Trask says. That was always my main concern. If Axel was somehow against this, I'd straight up quit. I would never do this if he disapproved. But I really think we do his songs justice. And people constantly tell me, you know, you sound better than Axel. And I say, whoa, whoa now, slow down. Because I like the way that I sing Ackles- Axel's songs, but I love the way that Axel sings them. That's the main thing I'm concerned about with this article. I do not want this to say anything negative about Guns N' Roses. That is all I ask. Now, I am the first reporter who has ever done a story on Paradise City. And now, this is less a comment on a commentary on Paradise City, named after one of Guns N' Roses' biggest hits, and more a commentary on the phenomenon of tribute bands, arguably the most universally maligned sector of rock and roll. These are bands mired in obscurity and engaged in a bizarre zero-sum game. If a tribute band were to succeed completely, its members would essentially cease to exist. Their goal is to not be somebody, their goal is to be somebody else. There are countless qualifications that must be considered when auditioning for potential members in a tribute. This was especially obvious when Paradise City had to find a new person to play Slash, GNR's unforgettable lead guitarist. It's not enough to find a guy who plays guitar well. Your Slash needs to play guitar like Slash. He needs to play Les Paul, and he needs to tune it like Slash. He needs to have long black hair that hangs in his face. Preferably, he should have a dark complexion, an emaciated physique, and a willingness to play shirtless, and if all possible, he should drink Jack Daniels. The Slash in Paradise City fulfills about half of these requirements. <laughs> Bobby's on thin ice right now, and he knows it," says Trask, referring to lead, singer, lead guitarist Bobby Young. I mean, he's an okay guy, and he's a good guitar player, but we have ads out right now for a new Slash, and he knows that. I want someone who is transfixed with being Slash. We want someone who is as sick about Slash as I am about Axel. And what is odd about Young's shortcomings, is, uh, shortcomings as Slash is that in a traditional band, his job would likely be the most secure. He is clearly the most skilled musician in Paradise City, with a degree from Cincinnati's Conservatory of Music. I was classically trained, so I'm used to everything being built around minor chords, he tells me, but Slash plays, dif- uh, plays almost everything in a major chord and his soloing is very different than mine. It's all in chromatic keys. I really thought I could learn all of these Guns N' Roses songs in two days, but it took me almost two weeks. Um, Unfortunately, Young can't learn how to look like a biracial former heroin addict, and he holds the only job in America for which this is a requirement. He only vaguely resembles Slash, and his bandmates tell them that he looks like an Oompa Loompa from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. There's a similar problem with Paradise uh, City's bassist, an affable, laid-back blonde named Spike. Spike is built a little bit too much like a farmer. His shoulders are broad, and he actually looks more like Larry Bird than Duff McKagan, the bassist of Guns N' Roses. Spike is also partly deaf from playing heavy metal for so many years. He can't hear certain frequencies, including high-end feedback, but amazingly, This doesn't seem to be a problem. Visually, the rest of Paradise City succeeds to varying degrees. Rob, the monster, Pullman, the drummer, could pass perfectly for Steven Adler if Pullman hadn't shaved his head and dyed the remaining bristles orange. Dishner is upset about Pullman's new haircut. A few days earlier, he had explained to me proudly that what sets us apart from the other 22 Guns N' Roses tribute bands in America is that we don't wear wigs. Trask is eight inches too tall to be Axel Rose, but he have the, has the voice of, and more important, the desire. He wills himself into Axelosity. Dishner is the only Paradise City member who naturally looks like his assigned doppelganger. Izzy Stradling, Guns N' Roses' original rhythm guitarist. He's also the guy who makes the trains run on time. He handles the cash, coordinates schedules, and keeps his bandmates from killing one another. Before Paradise City, Dishner played in a new. Uh, Y- Newe Malmsteam. Newe Malmsteam influenced heavy metal band called Premonition, a group whose entire existence was based on the premise that Juan Carlos, the king of Spain, is in fact the Antichrist. To this day, Dishner adheres to this theory and insists that it can be proved through biblical prophecy. He lives with his wife, Christy, an aspiring vampire novelist in a small suburb of Cincinnati. <laughs> There was a time when Paradise City had a tour bus, but they lost it last summer. And that is not a euphemism. They literally can't find it. (laughs) It broke down on a trip to Kansas City, and they had to leave it in a Missouri garage to make it to the club on time. Somehow they lost the business card of the garage and have never been able to find their way back. Dishner tells me this story three times before I realize he's completely serious. I mean, we drove back through Missouri a bunch of times. We put up a picture on the website, we even called the highway patrol, Dishner says, but we lost the bus and I guess there's some law that states you only have 30 days to find your bus. The band is now traveling with two vehicles, randy slash Axel will use his truck to pull the Hallmark trailer that holds their gear, he'll drive, I'll ride Shotgun, and Paul-slash-Izzy will curl up in the extended cab. A friend of the band, some dude named Teddy, will follow in his Ford Mustang, which will also carry Bobby-slash-slash and Rob-slash-Steven. The pickup box is covered with a topper, so Spike-slash-Duff will lie back there with Punky. Trask and Dishner do not know who Punky is. (laughs) Paradise City will earn $1,100 for the Harrisonburg show. After their manager takes 15% uh, and they pay for gas and promotion, that leaves them with $655, which split between five people ends up being $131 each. Obviously, this is almost nothing. But the operative word is almost. If the same five guys in Paradise City performed their own material, they would, have to play, they would have to pay club owners for the chance to play. Relatively speaking, 1,100 is good money. The thing about being in a tribute band is that your fans already exist, Trask says. You show up at the bar and there's, an immediate, uh, there's immediately a few hundred people who love Guns N' Roses and therefore love you. But our fans are Guns N' Roses fans. I mean, they're not really fans of Paradise City. We're not deluding ourselves. We hit the Virginia border around dawn. Trask begins scanning the radio stations in hope of hearing the commercial. This is a radio spot promoting Paradise City concert at the Main Street Bar and Grill in Harrisonburg. And uh, the band gets excited about hearing the commercial in the same way that normal bands get excited about hearing their first single on the radio. When we finally hear it, it refers to Paradise City's triumphant return to Virginia. High fives are exchanged all around. For the next hour, Trask and I discussed the real Guns N' Roses, a topic we were both obsessed with, albeit in very different ways. Just like mine, Trask's first musical love was Motley Crue, and before Paradise City, he fronted a Motley tribute band called Bastard, but he solely grew obsessed with the more combustible GNR. Guns N' Roses made its debut in 1987 as LA's most dangerous band, blowing the doors off pop metal with Appetite for Destruction, arguably the strongest debut album ever. They followed with an EP titled, uh, entitled G&R Lies, which is best remembered for the ballad Patience, and the controversial song One in a Million, a track that managed to be racist, homophobic, and xenophobic all in just over six minutes. <laughs> In 1991, Guns released two massive albums on the same day, Use Your Illusion One and Two, cementing their place as the biggest band in the world. There are no fashion don'ts inside the Main Street Bar and Grill in downtown Harrisonburg. You wanna wear a headband? It's fine. You wanna wear a a FUBU sweatshirt and a baseball hat featuring the Confederate flag? No problem. (laughs) This is the kind of place where you will see a college girl trying to buy a two-dollar glass of natural light on tap with her credit card and have her card declined. <laughs> the main street is not trendy, but it's cool, or at least gritty. And Paradise City has sold it out. Almost 500 people, mostly kids from nearby James Madison University, have paid $12 each to get inside, which is a big, which as is as big an audience as the 80s as. Uh, which is as big an audience as the Main Street will draw for next week's show by Dokken, an 80s metal act trying to make a comeback. One can only wonder how the real guys in Dokken feel about as being as popular as five fake guys in Guns N' Roses. The opening act is a local collegiate jam band called Alpine Recess. They look as if they'd rather be opening for a fish tribute band, but the crowd is polite. Meanwhile, Paradise City is dressing downstairs in the basement, drinking free beer in the storeroom and leaning against the water heater. They have decided to open with the song Night Train, even though it includes an extended five-minute guitar solo that Young worries might anesthetize the audience. Unlike the real GNR, Paradise City hits the stage on time. Trask moves his hips in Axel's signature snake-like sway and the crowd sings along with everything. Paradise City may not always look like Guns N' Roses, but they certainly sound like them. When I go to the bathroom and hear the music through the door, it's impossible not to think that this is how it would have sounded to urinate on the Sunset Strip in 1986. (laughs) This next song is dedicated to everybody who told you how to live, Trask says as he prowls the 25-foot stage. This is for everybody who told you not to smoke weed or to drink beer every day. This soliloquy leads us into the bubbling bass intro of It's So Easy, the angriest three minutes on Appetite for Destruction. Girls begin crawling on stage to dance on top of the amplifiers, and the band couldn't be happier. Ultimately, this is why they do this. On stage, they're paying tribute to the music of Guns N' Roses, but deep down, they're paying paying tribute to the lifestyle of Guns N' Roses. This is why guys create rock bands. Paradise City just created somebody else's. After the show, a few girls, most of who seem very young, accompany the band back to the Hampton, and the frivolity lasts until dawn. The gig is an undeniable success. There is a casualty, however. The next morning, something is clearly amiss with Punky. It turns out he fell down a flight of stairs before the concert and spent the entire Paradise City set lying on the concrete floor of their basement dressing room. He still managed to party with the band for the rest of the night, but in the morning, when the clarity of sobriety finally emerged, little Punky realized his wrist was broken and he had to be rushed to the hospital by ambulance. Oddly, or perhaps predictably, the band simply drove back to Ohio. (laughs) We left Punky with no car and no ride, broken and battered in a town where he knew absolutely no one. (laughs) Axel would have completely approved. Thank you. Uh,
0: Oh, he's so tall. I forgot to say that um, the show is broken up into three acts. Act one is comedy essays. Act two is a thoughtful conversation. Act three, it gets a little more uh, dramatic. So we're doing, did I say that? It doesn't matter, who cares? Uh, The next piece is written by a woman named Katie Brinkworth. She's a copywriter and associate creative director up in San Francisco for the ad agency, Pereira O'Dell. Uh, Before that, she worked for BBDO in New York, where I was a temp during my first two years in New York. Shout out to BBDO for giving me my first job, a bite and smile commercial for Pizza Hut. Uh, True story. She's written pieces for The New Yorker as well as McSweeney's, and that's where I found this gem. Um, In reading Katie's piece, is one of my favorite actors alive. Um, I first saw her in a production of The Three Sisters at the Williamstown theater festival, and uh, she's just wonderful. Um, A production that none of you saw, but I saw it, and it was great. You have seen her, however, on uh, Traffic Light, on The Newsroom, uh, Wolf of Wall Street, and on a show called You're the Worst, where she is just dominating television. Uh, Please welcome Aya Cash.
3: and from tallest to smallest. (laughs) Hmm. Friends, relatives, and neighborhood beekeepers, I'm sure you're all wondering why I've asked you to meet me here and not wear any perfumes or bright colors. Unfortunately, I have some disappointing news. My soulmate, the love of my life, and my husband of 10 years isn't who he says he is. The truth is, he's been a garbage bag full of bees this whole time. (laughs) Now, I know what you're thinking. How could this be? (laughs) Our love, our life together, and the face I drew on the outside of the garbage bag all seem so real. But even though it hurts, I have to admit that it's true. My husband has been leading a double life, or... Approximately 50,000 different lives, if you consider the volume of an average hive. It's the kind of devastating secret I never could have expected when I married him. Or, should I say it? This news has me questioning everything now, and I'm sure you have questions too. Like, should you still use the name Frank when addressing the bag? Or, who will get the house in the divorce? And... How exactly was I able to navigate the logistics of a sexual relationship with a plastic bag full of bees for so many years? (laughs) But I'd prefer to keep the sordid, he said, she said, garbage bag full of bees made a buzzing noise, details to ourselves right now. After all, there are kids involved. And even though I know now that our relationship was based on a lie, I can't help but remember the good times. I remember the day we met and the way my heart swelled when we first touched. I also remember the way my lips, mouth, eyelids, and throat also swelled. (laughs) It was a feeling unlike anything I've ever experienced. Maybe because it was I'd never felt true love before, or maybe it was because I grew up in a city with limited access to nature, but either way, I knew that this was the relationship and it was going to be special. In fact, to this day, I still get butterflies in my stomach whenever we see each other. <laughs> yes, I'll admit it's probably because there's a huge hole in the bag and I've swallowed some bees, but that hole isn't nearly big as the hole in my heart, which is also full of bees. <laughs> I suppose a few of you may have seen this coming and even voiced your doubts early on in the relationship. Though I ignored them, I wasn't, aware, I wasn't unaware of the concerned whispers behind my back. Is she sure about this? Has she stopped taking her meds? And oh my god, Brenda, you know I'm deathly allergic to bees. Why would you bring that here? But no matter how many times I heard it, or how many people went into anaphylactic shock as a result, I just wasn't ready to face the truth. I guess I was blinded by love. And also, as I mentioned earlier, my eyes were completely swollen shut for most of the marriage. But I guess this is nothing new. After all, it isn't the first guy that I've been with who hasn't been completely honest with me. In fact, every guy I've ever dated has turned out to be some kind of liar, cheater, international scam artist, pile of dirty laundry, small wooden puppet who dreams of one day becoming a real boy, the word man spelled out in a stack of children's books a chalk outline of a dead body at a crime scene, or even a Republican presidential candidate. But for some reason, this betrayal stings more than others. (laughs) And it's not just because stinging is a bee's natural defense mechanism, it's more like a metaphorical pain. It's also very itchy. It's been a tough road And after all this, I fear I'll never be able to trust again, that I may never find real love. But I just have to remember to stay positive and keep an open heart. After all, love can be unpredictable, and it can show up when you least expect it. Sometimes it even falls right in your lap, like a burlap sack full of wet rats flung onto your porch by an irresponsible pest control employee. I've got to go. Speaking of which, I have a hot date tonight.
0: (laughs) I've met met Aya's actual husband, and he is not um, a sack of bees or a sack, a burlap sack full of wet rats. Okay, act one is done. We're moving on to act two, which is a thoughtful conversation. Uh, Are there two microphones? Oh, yeah. Um, My guest today is the food critic for the LA Times. An LA native, he studied music and art at UCLA before becoming a proofreader for the LA Weekly. Uh, And that's where he began writing a column called Counter Intelligence, where he explored the entirety of the city specifically places that weren't getting so much coverage by traditional media. And he turned it into a book called Counterintelligence, Where to Eat in the Real Los Angeles. He is the first food critic in history to win the Pulitzer Prize. Pulitzer Prize? Pulitzer Prize. On the count of three, you say how you think it's pronounced. One, two, three. Pulitzer. Fuck you. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Uh, well, he knows how to pronounce it because he won it. Um, there's a documentary about his life and work that is out now that is fantastic. It's called City of Gold. Please welcome my guest, Jonathan Gold. Uh, we'll start off.
4: Pulitzer or Pulitzer? Um, they explain very carefully at the ceremony
0: that it's, (laughs) like, Pulitzer. Oh, okay. Has, have they ever rescinded a Pulitzer when someone pronounced it Pulitzer? I, I don't think they have. It's okay. Just... I hope not. Um, I have a bunch of questions, but before we get into um, restaurants and food, I want to talk about uh, writing and reading. And I was wondering if there was someone uh, in food criticism specifically that you modeled when you were beginning to write about food, that you modeled your work after. Mm
4: -hmm. Well, when I first started doing it, it was, uh, I I guess, a mixture of, like, Tom Hardy novels from the 30s and the Weekly World News.
0: The Weekly World News. Oh, yeah. They're really good at hyperbola. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Great Uh,
4: adjectives. uh, But
0: um,
4: I I imitated fairly relentlessly uh, Calvin Trillin, uh, who writes for The New Yorker, not about not about restaurants, but he he writes about eating. He, yeah.
0: Um, and and when you're when you're doing the fit, the actual work of writing, where where does that happen? Um, sitting at the dining room table usually. So you don't go into the Alien Times and sit in an office and close the door. You're you're at home. I I mean I'm in the Times a
4: couple days a week, but it's too quiet there. Everybody has the illusion of a big yelling newsroom. Yeah. But uh, it, it it it's it's pretty
0: tomb-like. It's and right. you would rather have the noise of a family going on around you when you're when you're writing. Yeah. Usually, I it's good to write in coffee shops too. Yeah. Um, are you pouring over notes while you're doing this, or do you just have the experience of the restaurant like in your brain, and you're just sort of remembering it?
4: um i i usually have uh, a few menus i have like a stack of reference books um Mm. about 412 tabs open on my computer
0: right (laughs) and what kind of reference books are you going to well
4: well it 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 depends what i'm writing about i mean if i'm writing about say a particular region of china there'll be like Cookbooks from that. There'll be uh, you know dictionaries of uh, Chinese ingredients. There will be uh, you know maybe a literary description of something.
0: Yeah. Did you always do that? Did you always have reference books sort of by your side, or is that something that you developed over time?
4: No, I, I always did. I mean, it's it's really important to me that I get things right. Yeah, and the, the thing that's confusing is that when I first uh, th- There was a certain point where there'd be an ingredient I didn't know and then I'd go to Wikipedia for it And I'd be the first reference and it's like what the hell is that really? Yeah? That's Cause so I, strange because I certainly didn't know and I'm not going to
0: depend on myself. No, no <laughs> That's that's we just learned don't depend on yourself um, or Wikipedia or Wikipedia unless you are Wikipedia how many times should a good food writer go to a restaurant before they write their review? Uh, the rule is you have
4: to go at least three. I'll usually go four or five. Who who says you have to? Um, it's sort of the
0: scary. St- <laughs>
4: I think the standards, for, the standards for the profession were set up by uh, a man named Craig Claiborne, who was the first restaurant critic for the New York Times in the 60s. Oh, wow, okay. And obviously there are some writers and some newspapers, and most websites don't have their writers go back that many times. But
0: Has that happened where you've gone to a place twice and have been on the fence, and you went the third time, and you said, oh, no, okay, now I'm seeing something that I didn't see before, and this is changing my... Per perception of this restaurant. Yeah, that, that happens all the time. Uh, I mean,
4: sometimes I'll be four times and I really won't understand the food and I really won't understand what they're doing. Yeah. And then I'll go the fifth time
0: and it kind of all falls into place. Well, can you give me an example? I'm putting you on the spot here, but the last time that you went, your fifth time, it sort of clicked in your head what the chef was trying to do.
4: Um... I I won't name it, but there was there was a there's a sort of really high-profile restaurant downtown that was trying to do like a take on American food in a very sort of technical thing. And I and I was like, if you're going to serve a falafel and you're going to charge that much money for it, it had better be the best falafel you have ever seen in your life. Right. And there's something strange about somebody who is in the perfect sort of like three star situation with three star skills making country fair food. Mm. But I, I think I figured out the through line on it. I figured out what was working, what wasn't, what he was trying to do. Wow. And I think it came together. I mean, there was was a restaurant, I know I've talked about this a lot, but there was a place uh, when I wrote for the times in the 90s that I went back to 17 times. Wow. Because the the first time I went was, I, I was encountering a lot of things for the first time, but I realized that the chef Wasn't screwing up that was what he was doing and everybody was there because they love the food And it was just my cultural relativism that was making it a bad experience Wow and sometimes it takes that many visits to realize that Not only is stinky
0: tofu permissible, but there's a difference between good stinky tofu and bad stinky tofu (laughs) (laughs) Um, Who else is doing it's because it's so different from someone who's reviewing a play where I'm assuming a a theater reviewer goes once, and then that review comes out and sings a show or celebrates a show. A movie reviewer, I'm assuming, only goes once. I guess it's the same, I mean, the theater is changing, but the movie is the same. if you're reviewing an album, that never changes. But food changes. Yeah. <clears throat> food does change. And
4: the ingredients are different from day to day. The dishes are this are different. Right, right. Um, the the aesthetic of the chef probably doesn't change. But you you need to see it through time, I think. Yeah. Because you're right. If you go back to see a movie next week, it's going to be the same movie that you saw on Tuesday. Yeah. Um, and when I, when I was a music critic, Sometimes it would bother me. I'd be reviewing a show of a band I really liked, but they play a really crappy show. Yeah. And you'd have to somehow be able to communicate that um, the band was good, but this was not a good show. You don't, it's hard to tell whether you're reviewing the band or the performance. Right. Or if you're a British magazine, whether you're reviewing the personalities of the musicians.
0: Is that something the British magazines tend to do when they're reviewing music? Oh, yeah, they could, they could actually care less what it sounds like. No with, shit. The time. <laughs> I had no idea. Um, in the documentary, we often see Inside Your Home, and it's absolutely covered in books, which you have a staircase that's going upstairs, and every step on the staircase has just stacks and stacks of books on it. Um, as
4: the, um, the writer Anthony Burgess once said, everybody wants to loan you books, but nobody will lend you a bookcase.
0: Gold! I feel like we should close now, but I have more questions. Um, uh, but, I mean, your house is covered in books, and as, as far as, as, as fiction goes, do you have certain fiction writers that you love and that you're drawn to more than than others? Um yeah, yeah, I mean in, inevitably. I mean
4: Who do you love? I mean, I I love Balzac cuz he's great at describing things. Yeah. Um I, you know, I I love Don DeLillo. Um a, a lot of the South American writers like uh, Mario Vargas Llosa and mm. Uh, Jorge Amado, um, have you gotten into collecting first editions? Um, I don't collect books; I amass them. They 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 grow independently, right? It's like it's like that little uh, that little sack of spider eggs underneath the sofa. Yes.
0: Expands. Yes. Yes. <laughs>
3: um,
0: ha- have you always only written? Um, Criticism and commentary or did you start out writing uh, like fiction? Did you ever write fiction? Um, I I wrote an extraordinarily bad novel when I
4: was 22. Yeah, what was Uh, it called? I I, Please (laughs) Please, pretty please Breakfast on Pico. Yeah I, I did. I did profiles for years for magazines like you know Spin, Details, Rolling Stone. Those. Right. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, I, w- I was wondering if it's hard to write um, a bad review. Uh, there's something you said about. I mean, t- typically you're reviewing new restaurants and a bad review like a review of a bad play can sink a play or, or a bad review of a restaurant can sink a restaurant and i'm wondering if that if that crosses your mind before you hit the send button sending that bad review to the editor that you that you worry about the consequences well it's really easy to write a bad review mm. i mean
4: it's you know sure the, it, 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 comes felicitously, uh, re- readers like them, you get to be much funnier than totally. you would. Uh, yeah. You, you, it, but there's a thing with restaurants that's different with other kinds of criticism, is that, I mean, maybe theater criticism, but, you know, if I write a, if somebody writes a bad review of Batman versus Superman, somehow... A, it'll make you know a billion dollars its first weekend. But Warner Brothers will open its doors the next Monday. But if I write right. a bad review of a restaurant, um, the restaurant probably isn't going to last very long. And I've I've closed enough restaurants in my life. And I don't like it. If the restaurant's that bad, it's going to die anyway. It doesn't right. need me to push it over the precipice. Yeah, um, and, and there's. There's what thirty thousand licensed eating places in LA County. I mean, there's there's a lot to write about.
0: Yeah, um, is it Michelin star or Michelin? Uh, um, Michelin, I think. Michelin, like
4: the tire. Yeah, it's Great. it's the same company. It was um, it was the first one was written in I think 1903 oh. as a way to sell tires. It figured if you were going to it had to give you some place to drive through, so yeah. uh, they reviewed restaurants around France. I feel like AAA
0: started, doesn't AAA do that as well?
4: Uh, yeah, they give Star Diamond Awards, I think. Right, yeah. That, um, you know, sometimes you think that
0: they award them for the cleanliness of the bathrooms rather than the cuisine. But.
4: <laughs> right.
0: I had an ex-girlfriend who um, corrected me when I mispronounced Michelin. Uh, I th- it, this is America. You can pronounce it however you. Goddamn like. right! <laughs> Breakfast at on P- at Pico. On Pico. Thank you. Um, do you trust the? I mean, they're the standard bearers for like for fine dining, the Michelin stars. Do, do you? I mean, they don't get it right every single time. I'm assuming, but you trust you trust those reviewers. They're exceptional. <clears throat>
4: I think in France, Michelin is still a pretty good resource. I mean, they're always, if you figure they're always five years behind, but they're accurate within that. But if you go to, say, Italy, you want to avoid restaurants with Michelin stars, because they're the ones that will have the fussy, semi-French food and flower arrangements the size of Buick. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And, and, And they'll spend more time, like, you know, worrying about the napery. I don't really care much about napery. Yeah. And in in Los Angeles, of course, the the Michelin's guide was completely useless. I think we uh, drove them out of town at dawn. Really? Why? Why is it useless here? Um, the standards for restaurants are. Different here. Mm. So, for example, you have a place like Gorilla Tacos, right? Yeah. it's it's a guy Wes Avila. He cooked with Ducasse, one of the most famous friends, chefs in France. He's cooked at you know splendid restaurants in California. And instead of spending whatever the two million, three million dollars that it would take to open a restaurant, at which point it doesn't belong to you; it belongs to the bank. Right. He set up like a food table which turned into a taco truck. But he gets the same fruits and vegetables as everyone right. else. He has great relationships with farmers. He has a he gets, you know, the best sea urchin. He gets a quality of pig that every chef in town wishes yeah. he or she could get. Yeah. And instead of serving it on a hundred and thirty dollar tasting menu, he puts it on a tortilla and charges six bucks for right. it. Is that worse than going to the sort of pretentious place with a napery. It's not. It's, it's different. The, in, in LA, the, um, the boundaries between high and low have been just exploded in the yeah. last 10 years. Um,
0: in the documentary, it's, it's about your work and it's about food and food criticism and the subtlety it takes to, to write about food. but. Um, it's more almost a love letter to the city and to its diversity. And you being one of the biggest proponents of its diversity and the wonderful things that diversity brings us, is there a section of the city that is yet to be suitably recognized for its cuisine?
4: Um, yeah, there are probably a lot of sections. Um, I mean, the, the North Valley hasn't really been explored in the way the, that it should. Uh, the sort of diversity of especially Mexican restaurants in, you know, south, south Los Angeles has, I mean, people have written written about it, including me, but I don't think have explored it yeah. in the depth that it should be yeah. explored. And actually, at this point, um, since I'm much more likely to go to uh, a killer noodle shop in the... Uh, you know, in Rosemead than I am to go to a mid-level hotel restaurant in Beverly Hills. Yeah. I mean, maybe there's great stuff happening in mid-level hotel restaurants in Beverly Hills. maybe. (laughs) Under my predecessor, you certainly knew about
0: them. Right, right. (laughs) Um, You taught me all about Alhambra. Alhambra is a great city. I mean, it's... it's Alhambra.
4: Well, it, in Spain, it would be Alhambra. So, right, yeah, yes. it's, it's accessible, acceptable. Uh, it, it's it's one of those cities that. Has it was traditionally Anglo for a really long time. It had a uh, a big sort of Spanish speaking contingent from mostly mostly from Mexico, like uh, second and third generation, and of course the the influx of new Asian immigrants and the way the cuisines come together is fascinating sometimes. Yeah. I mean, you, you can go to a place like the, the, the Belly Buster, which is a completely unreconstructed sandwich shop that could have been there in 1933. Or you could go to uh, Chengdu Taste and taste what you know the hip chefs in
0: Sichuan are doing at the moment. Yeah. Um, you're an LA native, and you grew up here, and you went to school here, and now you live and work here. Um, what do people from other parts of the country not understand about Los Angeles what what bias do they bring when they come to eat here
4: well you know, everybody around the world you know in in Nepal if there's one TV in the middle of the middle of a Himalayan village they'll sit around the TV set and they'll watch images of Los Angeles yeah and everybody sort of has an idea of what Beverly Hills looks like and everybody has an idea of what certain parts of LA look like from the you know Inevitable crime dramas, but the way that most of us live here, I think, is almost invisible. Mm. And if you're coming here as a tourist or traveler, I think it takes you a while to figure it out, that it that it isn't just what you can find within a 10-mile radius of the Beverly Wilshire Hotel.
0: Right. I and mean, why is that? Is it just, just fear? Are people afraid to... Uh, step out of their comfort zones and go to a neighborhood that they wouldn't otherwise visit like what
4: well partially it's that partially it's inconvenience right I mean you could drive a hundred miles in one direction and essentially still be in Los Angeles I mean it might be called Found Valley or something but it'll still culturally be LA right Um, and you can't do that anywhere else in the country I mean you probably could in Ohio right right <laughs> i mean I like be a different probably. part of ohio but right um, but but it's but it's huge and the communities are vast and it's not particularly welcoming unless you figure out how to make it welcoming. right right and you you've got to piece it together for yourself when you do sort of get some sort of like ma- mastery of the city when you figure you have like a fluency, at least a geographic fluency, then Mm. it feels great, but it takes a while to get there.
0: Yeah. Um, Okay, it's recommendation time. Uh, Let's get down to food. My my parents are in town. Where am I taking them for a traditional L.A. dining experience, but we've already been to Musso and Frank's? Uh, Is Musso and Frank's the kind of food they like? Yes.
4: Uh, you could take them to, except for the distance, to the Dalray and Pico Rivera. To the what,
0: where? It's called... <laughs> Those are two, I don't know where you're talking about or what you're talking about. <laughs> uh, uh, Dalray is a restaurant
4: from the 50s, a big sort of traditional steakhouse that was built... Um, it's like a, a racetrack restaurant, although. Oh, yeah. And it's pretty far from the racetrack, but it was the road that you would take. And it's the last place in LA where you still see guys with pinky rings at the bar.
0: Yeah, yeah.
4: And, you know, they, they have pepper steaks and shrimp cocktails and uh, lobster bisque, and it's, it's a wonderful place.
0: Yeah. Um, same situation. Parents in town again. Where am I taking them for an out of the box dining experience that is unique to LA, something they'll take back to their retirement village and talk about like for weeks. (laughs) We went to this place and all the lights were off or something like that, you know what I mean? Like a place that they will talk about for years. Have you you been to that restaurant where all the lights are off? No way. (laughs) I mean,
4: you do worry about what might end up there. <laughs>
0: yeah! <laughs> it's nuts! Uh,
4: there there was a, uh, a a chef in New York who had re- reviewed so severely that his restaurant closed, They invited me to his next restaurant, which is a place, Experian Rental place in the village, where one of the courses involved uh, being blindfolded and sort of bobbing for, for uh, foie gras dumplings in a thing of soup.
0: <laughs> I, I I was pretty sure there would be razor blades in there. Yeah, is this is this Halloween night or is this three hundred sixty-five days a year? That's bonkers. The restaurant didn't last very long. Probably no. not.
4: Uh, but, <laughs> but but but. Uh, uh, I mean, if you're going for the, uh, the calm side of that, I mean, Gala might be fun. I mean, it's, it's Oaxacan food. They've never had mole, which is like yeah. chicken with this totally ink-black sauce yeah. over it. Yeah. And if you go at night times, they have Oaxacan music and dancing. And, Perfect. Um, I'd like to go when there's not Oaxacan music and dancing, but that's, sure. that, that, that's just a per- personal yeah. preference.
0: Um, let's say I meet a gal, smart, attractive, works in publishing or something, or some really mm-hmm. wonderful non-profit. Um, terrific sense of humor. She's compassionate and empathetic. I don't know, maybe she has a subscription to Harper's, maybe not, I don't, it's not important to me. Maybe she's a concert pianist or a pediatrician. Who cares? I don't, it's not important to me what this woman does for a living. Um, let's say. <laughs> let's say I want to take her out for a classy drink somewhere. Where am I taking her? <laughs> um,
4: make make a reservation. You have to make a reservation Great. at the uh, Walker Inn, wh- which is uh, behind the uh, Normandy Room. Where is that? Um, it's on 6th Street near Normandy in uh, Koreatown. Okay. And it's sort of bespoke cocktails in an interesting way. Now they have a uh, Alice Waters-influenced um, drink menu. Oh, my that gosh. That, of course, resembles nothing Alice Waters has ever drunk, but, uh, <laughs> but, but, but you know there's going to be arugula in there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Uh, um, all right. So say, let's say cocktails went well, <laughs> and we hit we hit it off. And the next next weekend, I want to take her out to dinner, but I want it to be romantic. Where am I taking this woman to have a romantic dining experience? For some reason, romantic is difficult in LA. Tell yeah. me about
4: it. <laughs> <laughs> The, 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 vol- the volume is quite large. Um, oh. I mean, um, so, so you, I mean unless, unless that's a good thing, in which case, you know, you could take her to Bestia where the food is great. And right. no No matter how loud, unless you bring megaphones, you're not going to be able to hear one another. Yeah. Um, I'll but- shout at her. She'll shout at me. <laughs> But, but I, think, uh, I think a great new romantic place in town is uh, Spring, which just opened about a month ago mm. on the corner of Third Street and Spring downtown. Okay. The, the chef, Tony Ano was the, the chef at Patina for years and the uh, chef de cuisine for, um, for Alain Ducasse before that. Just a super good French guy. He's doing uh, like light and delicious Provençal cuisine. The wines are good. Wow. You're going to do
0: well. Thank you. Thank you, Jonathan Gold. Um, uh, I, you're not going for the third date somewhere exotic? No, it ends after 2. Oh, okay. I'm going to say something inappropriate and she's going to walk out. Um, I just, I, let me just say, I, I, I don't want to take up more of your time, but I just, if I can speak for all Angelenos, um, this city is better because you're in it. Thank you. Wow, thanks Thank so you. much. Jonathan Gold, there he goes. Oh, it's great. Uh, it's Act Three. Um, we've come to the final act of the show, and this is the more the dramatic side of the uh, of the podcast. I'm very excited about these final two pieces. Um, the first piece I found a few years back through Letters of Note, which is a wonderful website that is just as it's just it's letters of note. It's musicians and philosophers and writers and uh politicians letters that they've written. And this letter just gutted me. It's it's written by Ken Kesey, whose writing I think gets forgotten because of all of his exploits with the Merry Pranksters and the Acid Tests and the Grateful Dead and his partnership with the Beats. I think people sort of forget that he was this wonderful writer. They sort of lump him in with um with sort of the Grateful Dead scene, but uh Sometimes a great notion is, a, is an incredible novel, as is, of course, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And in the early 80s, his son Jed was a wrestler for the University of Oregon. And uh, he's from the Pacific Northwest. And they were on their way to a wrestling match and the bus um, hit a patch of ice and went over a guardrail, And his son was uh, critically injured and later died. And Kesey was never the same after this happened. Uh, he basically stopped writing. And this letter was written by Kezi a few days after the funeral um, to five of his closest friends recounting his experience. Um, and the guy uh, reading this piece is, uh, is an actor and a writer and a producer. And he's also a parent, which I think was important. Um, I've known him for all of my life. We were roommates for 11 years. Um, before he went to college You've seen him on numerous TV shows and movies um, Most recently on HBO's Ballers Which is returning for its second season this summer uh, Please welcome my dear brother, Rob Cordry. Don't, Don't blow it, play it cool It's going to get sad.
5: You're blowing this for me. Buckle up. Dear Wendell and Larry and Ned and Bob and Gurney, partners, it's been a bitch. I've got to write and tell somebody about some stuff, and like I long ago told Larry, you're the best backboard I know. So indulge me a little. I am but hurt. We built the box ourselves, George Walker mainly, and Zane and Jed's friends and frat brothers dug the hole in a nice spot between the chicken house and the pond. Page found the stone and designed the etching. You would have been proud, Wendell, especially of the box, clear pine pegged together and trimmed with redwood, the handles of thick hemp rope. And you, Ed, would have appreciated the lining. It was a piece of Tibetan brocade given Mountain Girl by Owlsley 15 years ago, gilt and silver and russet Phoenix bird patterns unfurling in flames. And last month, Bob, Zane was goose hunting in the field across the road and killed a snow goose. I told him to be sure to save the down. Susan Butkovich covered this in white silk for the pillow, while Faye and MG and Gretch and Candace stitched and stapled the brocade into the box. It was a double pretty day, like winter holding its breath, giving us a break. About 300 people stood around and sung from the little hymn books that Diane Casey had Xeroxed. Everlasting arms, sweet hour of prayer, in the garden and so forth, with all of my cousins leading the singing and Dale on his fiddle. While we were singing Blue Eyes Crying in the Rain, Zane and Kit and the neighbor boys that have grown up with us carried the box to the hole. The preacher is also the Pleasant Hill School superintendent has known our kids since kindergarten. I learned a lot about Jed that I'd either forgotten or never known, like his being a member of the National Honor Society and finishing sixth in a class of more than 100. We sung some more, people filed by and dropped stuff in on Jed. I put in that silver whistle I used to wear with the Hopi cross soldered on it. One of our frat brothers put in a quartz watch, guaranteed to keep beeping every 15 minutes for five years. Faye put in a snapshot of her and I with a pitchfork, all Grant Wood-esque, in front of the old bus. Paul Foster put in the little leather-bound New Testament given him by his father, who had carried it during his 65 years as a minister. Paul Sawyer read from leaves of grass while the boys each hammered in the one nail they had remembered to put in their pockets. The betas formed a circle and passed the loving cup around, a ritual our fraternity generally uses when a member is leaving the circle to become engaged. Jed and Zane and I are all members, you understand, not to mention Hagen. And the boys lowered the box with these ropes George had cut and braided. Zane and I tossed in the first shovelfuls. It sounded like the first thunderclaps of revelations. But it's an earlier scene I want to describe for you all, as writers and friends and fathers, up at the hospital in cold, gray Spokane. We generally started moving. He generally... He finally started moving a little. Zane and I had been carrying plastic bags of snow to pack his head in, trying to stop the swelling that all the doctors told us would follow as blood poured to the bruised brain. We noticed some reaction to the cold, and the snow I brushed across his lips to ease the bloody parch where all the tubes ran in caused him to roll his arms a little, then more, then too much, with the little monitor lights bleeping faster and faster. And I ran to the phone to call the motel where I had just sent most of the family for some rest. You guys better get back over here. He's either going or coming. Everybody was there in less than five minutes. Chuck and Sue, Kit and Zane, Shannon, and her fiance, Jay. Jay's dad, Irby, Cheryl, and her husband, Bill, my mom, Fay, my whole family, except for my dead daddy and grandma, Smith, down with age and Alzheimer's. Jed's leg was shaking with the force of his heartbeat. Kit and Zane tried to hold it. He was starting to go into seizures, like the neurosurgeon had predicted. Up till this time, everybody had been exhorting him to, hang on, old timer, stick it out. This thing can't pin you. You're too tough, too brave. Sure it hurts, but you can pull through it. Just grit your teeth and hang on. Now we could see him trying, fighting. We could see it in his clenching fists his threshing legs, and then, ah, Jesus, we saw in his face. The peacefully swollen, unconscious blank suddenly was filled with expression. He came back in, he checked it out, and he saw better than we could begin to imagine how terribly hurt he was. His poor face grimaced. It grimaced with pain, his purple brow knitted And his teeth actually did try and clench on those tubes. And then, oh, my old buddies, he cried. The doctors had already told us in every gentle way they could that he was brain dead, gone for good, but we all saw it. The quick flicker back of consciousness, the awful hurt being realized, the tears saying, I don't think I can do her this time, Dad. I'm sorry. I truly am. And everybody said, it's okay, old jitterdink. You know better than we do. Breathe easy, go on ahead. We'll catch you later down the line. His threshing stopped. His face went blank again. I thought of old Jack, Wendell, ungripping his hands, letting his fields finally go. The phone rang in the nurses' quarters. It was the doctor, for me. He had just appraised all the latest readouts on the monitors. Your son is essentially dead, Mr. Casey. I'm very sorry. And the sorrow rung absolutely honest. I said something. Zane picked up the extension and we watched each other while the voice explained the phenomena. We said we saw it also and were are not surprised. Thank you. Then the doctor asked a strange thing. He wanted to know what kind of kid Jed was. Zane and I both demanded what he meant. He said he was wondering how Jed would have felt about being an organ donor. Our hearts both jumped. He would love it. Jed's always been as generous as they come. Take whatever you can use. The doctor waited for our relation to ease down, then told us to take the kidneys. They had to take them before the life support was turned off. Did we understand? After a while, we told them we did. So Faye and I had to sign five copies apiece on a cold Formica countertop while the machine pumped out the little beep, beep, beep in the dim tangle of technology behind us. In all my life, waking and dreaming, I never imagined anything harder. Everybody went in and told them goodbye, kissed his broken nose, shook his hand, squeezed his big old hairy foot, headed down the corridor. Somebody said it might be a good idea to get a script for some downers. We'd all been up for about 40 hours, either in the chapel praying like maniacs or at his bedside talking to him. We didn't know if we could sleep. Chuck and I walked back to the intensive care ward to ask. All the doctors were there, bent over a long list, phoning numbers, matching blood types, ordering nurses. In such a hurry, they hardly had time to offer sympathy. Busy, and justly so but the nurses, the nurses bent over their clipboards, could barely see to fill out the forms. They phoned the hotel about an hour later to tell us it was over and that the kidneys were in perfect shape. That was about four in the morning. They phoned again a little after six to say that the kidneys were already in two young somebodies. <laughs> what a world. We've heard since that they've used 12 things out of him, including corneas and the red-winged blackbirds sing in the budding green-gauge plum tree. With love, Ken. P.S. When Jed's wallet was finally sorted out of the debris and confusion of the wreck, it was discovered that he'd already provided for such a situation. He'd signed the place on his driver's license, indicating that he wanted to be an organ donor in the event of etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. One man gathers what another man spills. Thanks
0: so much for coming. Um, I want to thank all of my readers, Brian Husky and Aya Cash, Rob Cordry, Tim Simons and Tommy Sadowski, and my wonderful guest, Jonathan Gold. The podcast is called Reading Aloud. You can find it on iTunes. Uh, thank you so much for joining me today. Have a great night. Thanks. <laughs> Enormous thanks again to the LA Times and Marit Orlis for having Reading Aloud at their festival of books. Our writers this week were Ken Kesey, Katie Brinkworth, Chuck Klosterman, Elliot Kalin, And also, David Foster Wallace, which you didn't uh, hear, but uh, believe me, it happened. Um, And thank you for your time and effort, Tim Simons, Brian Husky, Rob Cordry, Aya Cash, Tommy Sadowski, and to my interviewee, the great Jonathan Gold. If you aren't reading Jonathan Gold, start now. He knows more about food and food culture than anyone else in town, and I trust his opinion more than just about anyone. Hello? Hello. Did I just heard a phone ring? Was that yours? Who called? Oh, uh, it's uh, the guy that runs our website, asking for the password to the website. Oh, not a good sign for your wolf. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the book club for May is coming, and it's a very short read. It's like 170 pages. So get on board. Very accessible. Contemporary read. Our Souls at Night by Ken Hara, four and a half stars on Amazon, four stars on Goodreads, four stars on uh, Barnes and Noble. It is uh, described here online as a spare yet eloquent, bittersweet yet inspiring story of a man and a woman who, in advanced age, come together to wrestle with the events of their lives and their hopes for the imminent future. That's what we're getting into. So read the book. Ponder your life and the experiences within that life. And then send us an email at uh, readingaloudpodcast at gmail.com. And there's also another option this week, brand new to the Reading Aloud podcast. Call us. Leave us a voicemail about what you thought of the book. Here comes the number. Are you ready? Write it down. Here it is. All right, Nate. That number is 702-751-READ. 702-751-7323. Nice. Thank you, Sam. Uh, And thank you for joining us. If you like the show, you can subscribe to it on iTunes. That helps us. Leave a review. Tell the world that you enjoy this content. Um, Every little bit helps. And we will see you in two weeks with a brand new Reading Aloud and go get Our Souls at Night. Be a part of the book club and call us at where? 702 751 read Thanks, Sam. We'll see you next week. I love you, Nick. Love you too, Sam.
5: Oh, you hit me like a hurricane. Oh!
1: Get out your passports, because you're about to cross the border into hard nation. I'm Mark Hard, a proud conservative. And I'm Pete
5: Hard, a godless liberal. We're two brothers with different perspectives, but a passion for politics. And now we bring that passion to our show on Earwolf.
3: Now, finally, there's a podcast
5: that tells it like it is about what's really going on in this country. That's right. It's the election of the century, and we're the only ones willing to ask the real questions like, Hillary Clinton, what do you order at Chipotle? Or Ted Cruz Who would you cast in Ghostbusters? Check out Hard Nation today on Earwolf.com Howl, iTunes, or your favorite podcast
2: app Ooh, it's gonna get hard in here Get hard, people This has been an
0: Earwolf production Executive produced by Scott Ackerman, Adam Sachs, and Chris Bannon For more
5: information and content, visit Earwolf.com